Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Tuesday, October the 3rd, 1995, is a day I will never forget. As millions of Americans sat glued to their television set, awaiting the verdict in the O.J. Simpson murder trial, I sat by my telephone awaiting a different kind of verdict. 24 hours before that, a dermatologist had removed a piece of skin from my face that looked suspicious. He wanted to biopsy it. And the next 24 hours were very uncomfortable for me. Uh, because of my family's history with cancer, I immediately expected the worst. I remember a sleepless night in which I played out different scenarios, but I also spent the evening reviewing some of the regrets in my life. I thought about Saturdays that I had spent at the office polishing an already adequately prepared sermon instead of being at home with my two little girls. Not every Saturday, but some Saturdays. I thought about some of the hurtful words I had spoken to people who mean the most to me. I thought about time I had wasted that I could have spent strengthening my relationship with God. The next day, shortly after noon, you may remember, O.J. Simpson heard the words of the jury foreman announcing the trial's verdict, not guilty. Do you remember those pictures of O.J., the relief he showed when he heard those words, not guilty? There were no cameras recording my expression when I got a telephone call a few minutes after that telling me that that suspicious piece of skin was just discolored skin. It was nothing. Man, was I happy. Much more than OJ, I think. But my elation over my so-called acquittal was tempered by the fact that, statistically speaking, one day I would hear a different verdict. One day, I would learn probably I was going to die. How would I face that news then? How will you face that news? What if your doctor were to tell you that you only had six months left to live? Would you have any regrets in your life? As you thought about your marriage, for example, would you know that you're leaving behind a spouse whose memories of you were filled with affection and joy? What about your children? Would your children be able to say that they were a priority in your life? As you think about your vocation, would you be able to look back and say, I had a fulfilling job that made a significant contribution? As you looked over your ministry, would you be able to identify people who are going to be in heaven directly because of your influence and your witness? And what about your relationship with God? If you knew you were going to die soon and meet your maker, would you be filled with joy or absolute fear? The poet was correct when he said, of all the sad words 
of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. I'm not afraid of dying. I'm really not. But I am afraid of approaching death with a long list of if-onlys. Maybe you fear that as well. And so today, we are going to begin a brand new series entitled, Say Goodbye to Regret. And let me say up front, this is not a series about dying. It's a series about living. But if we want to die well, we need to live well. There's an inseparable link between the two. Dr. Nelson Bell, the father-in-law of the late Billy Graham, said, only those who are prepared to die are really prepared to live In this series, we're going to identify eight resolves we have to make if we're going to live a life that is without regrets, without life's if-onlys. But before we look at those eight resolves that cover every area of our life, today we're going to begin this series by looking at three foundational assumptions to living a regret-free life. I want you to write them down. First of all, the certainty of death. The certainty of death. The legendary football coach, Bum Phillips, used to say, there are, there are only two kinds of coaches in the world. Them that's been fired and them that's going to be fired. Well, you know, there are only two kinds of people in the world when you think about it. Those who are dead and those who are going to be dead. The fact is we are all going to die. Has that realization sunk into your consciousness yet? We are all going to die. Yeah, we can do things like watch our diet and exercise and go to the doctor. Those are important things, but they're only postponing the inevitable. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed unto every one of us once to die and then the judgment. Remember that nursery rhyme we all learned as children? Ring around the roses, A pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Do you remember the origin of that rhyme? It came about in the 17th century when the Black Plague swept through Great Britain. The first year, the plague killed 35,000 people. The second year, it killed 37,000 people. By the end, the Black Plague had destroyed one-seventh of England's population. People believed that the plague was contracted by breathing polluted air. And so the doctors tried all kinds of things to do to heal the victims of the plague. They would encourage them to walk around gardens and breathe in the fragrance of the fresh flowers. For those two patients too ill to walk, the doctors would fill their pockets with the petals of roses and posies. Sometimes the doctors would take ashes and blow them in the face of their patients, causing them to sneeze and clear their polluted lungs. But nothing worked. It was an old man who was pushing a cart through the streets of London, a cart filled high with the corpses of the plague's victims who first uttered that rhyme. A ring around the roses a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Far from being a childish nursery rhyme, it was a lament about the certainty of death. 
we are all going to die. Remember Psalm 90, Moses said, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to the dust, you mortals. You sweep away people like dreams that disappear. They are like grass that springs up in the morning. In the morning it blooms and flourishes, but by evening it is dry and withered. Seventy years are given to us. Some even live to be 80. But even the best years are filled with pain and trouble, and soon they disappear and we fly away. Teach us, Lord, to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom. Solomon said it this way in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 2, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and one for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, and for the unclean, for the man who suffers the offers the sacrifice, and for the one who does not sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. We all face the same fate. Doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, a non-Christian, a Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter anything about your beliefs, you're going to die. That's the fate we all face. Now, fortunately, we have the same fate, but we don't have the same destiny. There are two different destinies after we die. There's a heaven for those who know Christ as Savior. There's a hell for those who reject or neglect Christ. But nobody is going to escape death. And if we're going to face our final hour of life without any regrets, we first of all have to acknowledge there is a final hour coming. We are going to die, the certainty of death. There's a second reality assumption that we have to embrace to live a regret-free life, and that is the reality of regret. Not only the certainty of death, but the reality of regret. I had two motivations in doing this series, Say Goodbye to Regrets. One was a personal experience I had with my dad. You've heard me talk about my father before. He was successful in his career. He was a great Christian. He was instrumental in leading my mom and all of us, his children, to faith in Christ. When he was 64 years old, he got news that he had pancreatic cancer and had four months to live. I wish I could say those were a good four months in his life. They weren't. I listened to him as he lamented the regrets he had in his life, regrets about career opportunities he didn't maximize, regrets about relationships that he didn't nurture, regrets about ministry opportunities he didn't take advantage of. And I thought how sad for somebody who's lived a good life to end their life with a long list of regrets. But you know, regrets aren't reserved for the dying they're for the living as well. And that's my second motivation for this series. I've seen so many Christians who are weighed down by regrets. Sometimes it's a milestone event that triggers those regrets to the forefront of their consciousness. A child's graduation from high school, the parent thinks, if only I'd spent more time with my child, I wouldn't miss them so much as they're about to leave. Maybe a termination from a job, if only I had expended more effort in this job, I wouldn't have lost it. Maybe it's about a divorce. If only I had nurtured this relationship more, I wouldn't be facing this divorce, the leaving of a mate. 
Sometimes it's the death of a parent. If only I had told them more often how much I love them, I wouldn't feel so guilty. Sometimes it's a milestone event. Sometimes it's just moments of reflection that trigger our regrets. One time I was meeting with a group of men. They ranged in age from 30 to 70. And I asked them to write down their greatest regrets in life. It didn't surprise me what they put down when I read them later. It was typical, what you would expect. Regrets about work, uh, education, marriage, children, and so forth. But what stood out to me was how quickly those men were able to identify those regrets and write them down. Nobody was sitting in the chair saying, hmm, regrets. Do I have any regrets? Let me think. They immediately thought of regrets they had, which means they were carrying them with them. Those regrets were weights that were holding them back in their relationship with God. In Hebrews 12:1, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. If you're a runner and you want to do well in a race, you try to travel as lightly as possible, so you take off any unnecessary weight. Now, what are the weights for a Christian? Well, he said there's certainly sin. We all know what that is. Nothing will trip you up in your Christian life any more than sin, but apparently there are other kind of weights that aren't necessarily sins. And I think one of the heaviest weights other than sin is regret. Regret, if only, if only, if only. The writer here says we've got to get rid of those regrets. How do you do that? How do you get rid of regrets? Just imagine you're driving along and you see on your dashboard a little indicator light pops on, says, check engine now. Now, how do you respond to that warning light? Well, one thing you can do is take a hammer and beat the living daylights out of the dashboard, and you will extinguish that light. You'll be successful in doing that. But the light isn't the problem, is it? The light is an indicator of a problem that needs to be fixed. And it's the same way with regret. People say, well, I'm just going to extinguish my regrets. I'm going to refuse to think about them, get rid of them. That's not the problem. Regrets are not the problem in and of themselves. They are an indicator of a problem that needs to be dealt with. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says we need to get re rid of our regrets by dealing with our regrets. And in this series, we're going to talk about how to deal positively with regrets. Now, one other word about the reality of regrets. The only thing worse than spending your life filled with regrets is spending eternity filled with regrets. Do you know there are some people in hell and heaven who will have regrets for all eternity? Let's talk about unbelievers. First of all, they will live a lifetime, an eternity of regrets. Remember the story Jesus told in Luke 16 about the two men who died one was a poor man named Lazarus, and he went to heaven not because he was poor, but because of his faith in God. The rich man went to Hades, not because he was wealthy, but because he neglected God. And listen to what Jesus said about the rich man in Luke 16, 23. And in Hades, that is hell, 
he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes being in torment. And he saw Abraham afar away and Lazarus in his bosom. And the rich man cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may tip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. By the way, Jesus taught there is a real hell, and it's filled with people who will suffer real, literal, physical pain in hell. It is a place of torment. But you know what the most painful thing about hell is going to be? It's going to be our remembrance of our life on earth. Because as you read through this account, Abraham says, I can't help you. He said, remember, rich man, while you were alive, that word remember, while you were still alive, you had plenty of opportunities to hear the message and repent. I think that's going to be the most painful part of hell for unbelievers. They will remember this didn't have to happen. They will remember all of the sermons they listened to, all of the personal witnessing they were subject to when they had an opportunity to trust in Christ but never did. That is true hell, an eternity of regrets. But it's not only unbelievers. There are some Christians who are going to experience a measure of regret in heaven. Where do I find that? In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, for we, that is talking about Christians, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, whether whatever he has done, whether they be good or worthless. We've talked about this many times. There is a judgment for Christians. It's not the same judgment as for unbelievers. It's called the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. It's not a judgment to determine whether we go to heaven or hell. That's determined in this life. This is a judgment of rewards. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul describes the basis and the result of that reward. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, Paul writes, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." God's going to judge our works after we become a Christian. Have we invested in those things which are eternal? We receive a reward, a commendation. Or have we frittered our life away in things that make no difference at all? Then we will what? He said, each man will suffer loss. Will you underline that in verse 15? Christians will experience real tangible loss. They will feel that loss as they look at the rewards that could have been theirs had they been more faithful to Jesus Christ in this life. Now, I know that goes against the grain of thinking of so many people. They say, having regrets in heaven? Pastor, that sounds like more like hell than it does heaven. But isn't that what the passage say? We will experience loss. You may legitimately ask, how can I be overjoyed in heaven, be filled with joy, and have regret at the same time? Isn't that impossible? Not at all. 
You can be grateful and regretful at the same time. You can experience joy and regret in the same instance. I use this illustration often. Just imagine your insurance agent tells you that you need to update your insurance policy on your home. It's been 10 years, prices have increased, you need to have $100,000 more coverage on your home than you had. And you think, oh, maybe he's just trying to earn a higher premium, and maybe I'll think about it later, but no need to rush into that. One night, you're awakened by the smell of smoke in your house. You realize your house is on fire. So you grab your mate, hopefully, and you go get your children, and you grab your most priceless possessions, and you crash through the front window to save your lives, and you're standing on the lawn looking at your house going up in flames. Now, what's going to be your emotion at that moment? Certainly, you're going to be grateful, joyful that you escaped the flames. But do you think there'll be a little bit of regret there as well? As you wish you had done things differently, as you wish you had listened to that insurance agent, joy and regret can coexist. And it's going to be that way in heaven. Every Christian in heaven will rejoice with eternal gratitude to God for escaping the flames of hell. But at the same time, there will be regret as Christians realize what could have been theirs if only they had been more faithful in their service to Jesus Christ. Now, we've talked about the certainty of death and the reality of regret, and you may think this is the most depressing sermon I've ever heard. So let me remind you of the third assumption, and that is the possibility of change. The possibility of change. In my book, Say Goodbye to Regret, I tell the true story of Alfred Nobel. You may remember Alfred Nobel. He was a Swedish chemist who invented dynamite. And he earned a fortune licensing that discovery to other countries to help them blow people up more quickly and effectively. He earned a fortune. One day, Alfred Nobel's brother passed away, but the newspaper made a mistake. Instead of printing his brother's obituary, <laughs> they printed Alfred Nobel's obituary. And Alfred had the ability to do something most people will never get the opportunity to do. He was able to read his own obituary in the newspaper. He was able to see what he would be remembered for. And guess what it centered on? His discovery of dynamite. He was called the merchant of death in his obituary. Alfred Nobel decided right then that's not how he wanted to be remembered. So he decided to spend the rest of his life and most of his fortune establishing those prizes that encourage humanitarian achievements in all the different areas of life, the Nobel Prizes. We talk about the Nobel Peace Prize. That all came about by Alfred Nobel. Today, most people have no idea that Alfred Nobel was the inventor of dynamite, but they remember him for what he did to encourage humanitarian accomplishments. Now, the truth is most of us will never achieve the fortune or the fame of Alfred Nobel, but we all have the ability to change our lives right now, to change the focus of our life. As you look over your life up to this point, as you look back 
Are there regrets that you have about your marriage, about your parenting, about your careers, about your relationship with God? If so, I have some good news and some bad news for you. The bad news is you can't do things over again. Life has no do-overs. You can't change your past. There is no rewind button on life. That's the bad news. But the good news is you can make decisions today of change. You can make decisions today that will reshape your tomorrow and your eternity. Paul said in Philippians 3, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching for what lies ahead of me, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. I know many of you are Christians already listening to this message. Maybe God has already spoken to you about some changes you need to make in your life right now so that you don't face eternity with regrets. You can make those changes through the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'm also talking to some here, some watching this service, who are not yet Christians. If you were to die right now, you would spend eternity separated from God because your sins have not been forgiven. How do you receive God's forgiveness that we all need? It's not by working hard. It's not by going to church. We can do nothing to earn God's forgiveness. It's something we receive as a gift from God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If today you would like the certainty that when you die, not if you die, when you die, you're going to be welcomed into God's presence, I want to invite you wherever you are to pray this prayer in your heart to God right now, knowing that God is listening to you. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.